it is by wine from his body. So let's look at this closely. All right? Here's where we start into our really start to dive into Eucharist that I've been, I've been hinting at and hinting at and we've been talking about since January. Ready? This is what John wrote in his first letter. The blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. The blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. And Jesus was clear, we know, we celebrate it every week, that on the last night with his disciples, he took wine and he said, this is my blood. Okay? Now, watch St. John. He starts his story, the Gospel of John, with water being turned into wine. The water of man's law being turned into the wine of God's grace, the blood of Christ. And at the end of his book, he gives us this detail. One of the soldiers pierced Jesus' blood with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. John is... Oh. If you are readers, think of your favorite reader and then read the Gospel of John. And if you're not readers, start with the Gospel of John. It will make you a reader. And if you are not reading the Bible regularly right now, or are not reading the Bible at all right now, here's a suggestion. Read the, read the book of John for Lent. Lent lasts about six, well, it's about five weeks now. Read a little bit of John every day. And if you don't like the way most modern English translations of the Bible read, Get the translation, the message, and read it a little bit every day. And I promise you, by the end of five weeks, if you read this particular book a little bit every day, you will be blown away by how beautiful it is. John is spectacular. This is one of my Lenten practices this year, is going back through the book of John. It's just incredible. So, I want to make a suggestion. I fully believe... That what is intended for us to know in this wedding story is that this wine is meant to be understood as the blood of Christ. Okay? Now, in the coming weeks, we're going to start talking about wine and blood in the blood of Christ, bread in the body of Christ. And we're going to go slowly at first. I can tell just now from some of the faces I just got when I said we're supposed to understand this as the blood of Christ. We're going to have to go really slow. But we're going to see the widespread imagery of wine in Scripture. It's everywhere. Why is that? We're going to talk about that and look at that. It's going to be challenging. I know that. It's going to be eye-opening or maybe eye-closing for some of us that we don't want to see anymore, which is fine. It's going to be paradigm-shifting, and hopefully it's going to be ultimately transformative for all of us. And I think what we are going to discover together is that the idea of wine being his blood and bread being his body may all at the same time, all at the same time, be much more mystical than any of us have ever given it credit for and also much more ordinary. But for now, let's keep with this story and see why this makes sense here, that we are to understand the wine as his blood in light of the fact that we know his blood redeems us. Okay, now first of all, I need to make a side note, and it's a very important side note, especially this particular Sunday, given the events in the world this week. 
we have to be very careful here in understanding this story. Because how we understand this and how we explain this can be very anti-Semitic. It can be very hateful and hurtful toward the Jewish people. In fact, one of the most frustrating things to me about the way the book of John has been treated, which I think is one of the most beautiful pieces of writing ever in the history of the world, is it is often interpreted in such a way that it has been used throughout Christian history as a reason to be anti-Semitic and anti-Jewish. But let's start by recognizing the obvious. Religion does not save. Jesus does. We believe that. Well, Jesus was Jewish. And John, who wrote this book, was Jewish. Their scripture was the Jewish scripture. It is ludicrous to think that either Jesus or John, faithful Jews, faithful Jews after resurrection as well, would be trying to destroy their religion. But see, that's an interpretation that is easy for Christians. Because it feeds into our fear. We can look at this story and say, oh, see, the water is Judaism and the wine is Christianity. We're perfect. They're not. No. I'm sorry, I reject that understanding of this story. The wine is not Christianity. The wine is the blood of Jesus Christ. Let's consider the story from a different perspective that might help you with what I'm saying. Let's call the jars of water appeasement theology, transactionalism, what we talk about a lot, and the wine of Christ, grace theology. Now does it start to make more sense? Because all religions have appeasement theology, including ours. So Christ is not commenting on the Jewish tradition. He is commenting on all religion. What I, what I believe Jesus is saying through this miracle is that God's grace has always been and always will be the only way a person can be redeemed. So salvation, remember, when we say salvation, we're not just talking about a moment in time of conversion. We're talking about the ongoing, ongoing conversion of our lives, the ongoing transformation of our lives that only grace performs in us. Okay, that's what we're talking about when we say salvation. So salvation has always and will always come only by grace. Peter and John both assert that Jesus was the lamb slain from the foundations of the world. So while the cross is a specific moment in our time, chronos, the cross has always been a constant in God's time, kairos. The writer of Hebrews was quite clear that since the beginning of time, man has been saved by grace as received through faith. So again, in this miracle, I think what Jesus is saying is that the sacrifices and the washing that the Israelites were taught were intended not to appease. That's an incredibly Greek reading of a Hebrew book. We're not intended to appease God. We're not intended to manipulate God into loving them. We're not a transaction. But they were to be legitimate responses to salvation. Indicative. Thanksgiving rituals, if you will, 
for God's saving love and grace. Prior to the cross then, in our time, because the cross had already happened in all time, but prior to the cross in our time, people were to have faith in a coming Messiah that would reveal to them that God loves them and his grace alone saves them. Their faith would be evidenced by these practices of sacrifice, these practices of cleansing, and if you read the Old Testament carefully, mostly they'd be evidenced by their love for others. Okay. Just as since the cross, we're to have faith in a Messiah that came in the past and revealed to us that God loves us and his grace alone saves us so that all of our own faith in that Messiah is to be evidenced by our own practices of cleansing, of sacrifice, and mostly, if you read the New Testament carefully, of loving each other. There's the indication of our faith. But when our practices become the means of salvation, the means of trying to please God, then we have put our faith in another Messiah, ourselves. And that is what Jesus found among some folks in his own tradition when he came. They had changed the beautiful story of people being saved by God's amazing grace and thanking him for it, which is why God established all the things he did in the Old Testament, not so they would be good enough to thank him for what he had done. And they turned it into empty, man-made rituals, man trying to save themselves with their own self-righteousness. Interestingly, all of their rituals had come right out of their scripture, but they had been twisted, added to, added to, misunderstood, and now lacked the very heart of the matter. And the proof was obvious in the rejection of the Messiah they were supposed to believe in for salvation. Some folks just did not think Jesus was he because they had been convinced their religion was just man trying to appease God like every other religion. Jesus tried to redeem their understanding of Scripture and show them it was always about grace, which is why his first miracle was turning wine into his blood. And sadly, this has become the same for much of Christianity. It even happened in the early church, remember? <clears throat> we studied it in Galatians. Shortly after, there was even an early Christian tradition. I marvel that you are so, turning, so soon turning away from him. So if it was turned away from back then because of how strong the draw is to appeasement theology, where would we be 2,000 years later? I strongly believe if Jesus were to come today as he did back then, he would have to do a similar miracle to expose the emptiness of our own faith tradition. So much of what we do is no longer faith in God's grace. Let's be honest. I teach grace week in and week out, and I look at my life through the week, and I'm often caught up in appeasement theology and transactional Christianity. How do I know that? Well, sometimes it's very clear because some of my prayers and some of my conversations with God are filled with appeasement theology. And other times it's mostly clear because I withhold grace from others. 
And the second I withhold grace from others, I know I don't believe in grace. See? So much of our faith is in our own ability to make him happy, to be good enough for him, to know enough about the Bible. The Pharisees knew their scriptures better than any one of us. I guarantee that. Because they didn't have it in a second language. <laughs> but if we're doing all that, hoping God will be happy with us, hoping we will be the elect. This is nothing but empty appeasement theology. But it's very understandable. I'm not mad at myself. I'm not mad at anyone sitting here. I'm not mad at anyone that falls into appeasement theology. It's understandable because it's fear-based, and we live fear-based lives. It started way back in the garden. That's our heritage, is to be fear-based. And so fear-based leads to appeasement theology. Have you ever thought about the story when they turned all the gold into a golden calf at the bottom of the mountain when Moses was up there for 40 days? Have you ever really thought about what was happening? This God did amazing grace to get them out of Egypt. I don't even think most of them even wanted to get out of Egypt, to be honest. But he does this amazing, graceful thing, and then all of a sudden it goes quiet for a while. Oh, no, and the fear creeps back in, and the fear creeps back in. That's all that was. They had just come from a place where for 400 years you appeased the gods. So why should their god be any different? And oh my gosh, it's thundering and lightning up there, and whatever else it's doing, and Moses must be dead, and we better appease him quick. We all do that. We're all afraid. This is why we have to ask ourselves what we really believe about God and what we really believe about our Christianity and the stories that we embrace and the stories that we then communicate. Think about them to their logical end. Is that God? Because if a lot of what we believe about God really is that, then we better make golden calves and we better be really good at it. What's so strange about appeasement theology is that it seems to appease our fear. But all it really does is support our fear. Because appeasement theology says we're in control. That's why we love it so much. I know the right answer. I'm right. They're wrong. I'm in. God loves me, not them. That's all appeasement theology is. That's all it is. But it just stokes our fear. Grace is fully letting go of fear and trusting that God really does love us and everyone else because of grace. If rules could save us, Jesus never would have turned this water into wine. So, it may be true that Jesus came and found much of his own tradition lacking. That may be true. But our focus as Western modern Christians should not be on what Jesus found in his own tradition. It should be on what would he find if he came to our tradition today. Would he find people celebrating the wildness of grace or people living under the burden and chains of appeasement? Would he find people drinking the wine of gladness or washing in the water of lifeless living, to quote Michael Card? 
Would he find people living like this Messiah in response to his love for them, or would he find people living like a Messiah that looks a lot like themselves? And I want to go off my notes just for a couple minutes because to not would be wrong. But it's really not off my notes. It's just that I didn't have it in there because I prepared this before, before Thursday. As Christians, and that's all I'm talking to right now, if you are not a Christian and you don't believe in Jesus Christ, I am not talking to you. I want to be clear about that. Because I am not talking about human politics. I am talking about Christian belief. Seeds are very powerful things. Jesus used seeds a lot. Because while seeds seem innocent and innocuous and impossible of anything, seeds grow into things. You can take a seed and you can put it in the crack in your driveway, and if that seed never grows, it'll never hurt your driveway. But if that seed grows, right, it's going to rip your driveway up, especially if it's an acorn. Okay? All right. I want to encourage us. Those of us that believe Jesus Christ is trying to make us like him. I want us to explore our seeds and our faith. All of them this Lenten season. All of them. I want you to pick up every single thing you believe. And I want you to turn it over. And I want you to ask yourself, what does this lead to if it grows? You can't read the Gospels. You can read a lot of the rest of the Bible and get a lot of hate in it. But there is no one, I will challenge anyone to read the Gospels and tell me that Jesus Christ hated people. That's not there. This is the God we are following. Hate is something that grows from seeds that seem innocuous. Seeds that suggest someone is less loved by God than others. We all have that seed, I guarantee it. Pick it up and look at it. It's part of your faith. You would have to be way down the road of this faith to not have any more of those seeds in your Christian bag. And I confess I am not that far down the road. I know that's where Jesus is bringing me. Pick these seeds up and examine them. Any seed in you that at any level suggests someone is less than you is not a seed that Jesus Christ has planted in you. I promise you that.
that seemingly innocent seed is all it takes with a little bit of water and a little bit of sunshine, which is easy to give those seeds because we live in fear. And so fear makes us sit together and talk about things and how different people are and what it might mean for our lives if we allow and if we include and if we are kind and if we are generous. And now all of a sudden you have a seed that's growing. Please understand, no one here is incapable of stopping a seed once it starts growing. like our Cherokee myth we use. You feed that bad wolf long enough and you will have no more control of it. As Christians, we have to stop feeding that bad wolf. Please, please. I don't care how well or good or common sense it sounds. Just stop feeding it. Because that bad wolf chases little children and shoots them in the back as they're running away. And don't you dare let yourself say, I would never do that. That man was not born like that. He grew into that. Because seeds that were planted were given water and were given sunlight and grew. If you are not a Christian, I don't care what you think. Not in a bad way. I love you, but I don't care if you're not listening to me. But we who profess to follow Jesus Christ, if we don't start speaking as Christ spoke and living as Christ lived, all we're doing is feeding and watering and giving sunshine the things that will become monstrously evil. Please. Please. Jesus came and poured his life out for us figuratively at this wedding at Cana. And in a few years after this wedding at Cana, he's going to pour his life figuratively out for us again at the cross. And he revealed that grace is the answer. So if grace is the only thing that can save us, then perhaps we should not insist on throwing away his wine and going back to water, no matter how good that water might seem. Let's move into grace. Let's drink the wine. Let's love the real Messiah. And in and through him, let's pour out our lives for others. For others.